This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and this is the 35th episode of Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I've been in practice as a clinical psychologist for over 20 years in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I began podcasting to extend the walls of my practice to those who might be in counseling or interested in therapy, but also to the scads of people, probably millions of people, who would never consider or would rarely consider going to therapy or being even open to the idea, and yet they're still struggling. So I wanted to give everyone a chance to listen in on what a psychologist sounds like, thinks, what therapy might be like. So I'm so glad you've joined me today as we talk about abuse from your past and how to handle it. So many people get stuck trying to deal with their abuse on their own. They get stuck in one emotion or another, perhaps stuck in sadness, stuck in fear, stuck in anger. We're going to talk about how you get unstuck and four seemingly simple, but not so simple ways to heal. Then our listener email is about how do you handle the intensity of emotion and vulnerability that you can feel in therapy. In fact, it can be so bad, you might even want to end the relationship. But there is another way of handling it, and we're going to be talking about that. Thanks for joining me, and we'll get right to it. You know, when my dad died, I knew something had changed forever. I was one of the lucky ones. I had really good parents. They were solid. They were consistent. There were some problems in our family, but they weren't severe. And my dad was very open with his love. One of his favorite things to say to me when I'd made a mess of things, which I did, was you can always come home, or he'd send me a handwritten letter when things were tough often quoting scripture, but always with a supportive guiding message that reminded me of what was really important in life. And I knew that his eyes would light up when he saw me, especially when I no longer lived in the same city as him and my mom. Let's face it, I know my husband loves me, but I'd have to be gone a long time before his eyes lit up after 27 years of marriage. So my dad's love was very pure, and he gave it freely. Like I said, I was lucky. As a therapist, I've heard hundreds of stories of children who are now adults when they see me suffer terribly at the hands of the very people who are supposed to care for them, their parents, sometimes their grandparents. And yet there's a frequent tendency to somehow discount the pain of what was their quote-unquote childhood. They didn't actually ever get to be children, but had to grow up almost instantaneously in order to handle day after day of being ridiculed, demeaned, abused, or forgotten. They'll say things like, I can't remember too much of it, it's a blur. What I do remember is all the fighting. Or, I just did what I had to do. I tried to stay out of my dad's way when he was drunk. Or, one day my mom would be so sweet, but the next she'd come after me with a vengeance. Or, I didn't tell anyone, but I was always hungry. I've discovered that healing isn't about going back and blaming parents for whatever their shortcomings were. Blame will likely leave you stuck or paralyzed in bitterness, anger, or even fear. You risk still living in the past 
or you may walk around with a huge chip on your shoulder like the world owes you something for having a really awful or crummy childhood. Healing isn't about blame. Healing is about acknowledgement. I worked with a great big burly guy several years ago. Let's call him James. He had terrible obsessive compulsive disorder and would drive himself crazy, feeling compelled to do things in a certain rigid, very ritualistic manner. He also had a terrible temper and had been violent at times when arguing with family members. He was really unsure about therapy, but he was willing to try. We worked on some changes, some different ways of thinking about some of the rituals in his daily behavior. He also went on medication that was specifically geared toward obsessive compulsive disorder. And so he got better with that. But it wasn't until he revealed being sexually abused by a grandfather that quick tears came into his eyes as he made the connection between his anger and the abuse. What he told me was, I never thought about it like that. I don't want anyone to mess with me. For the first time in his life, James was understanding the connection between who'd he become as an adult and his childhood. It seemed so simple, but he completely discounted the damage that had been done to him. I've worked with so many people who do the same thing. Maybe you do the same thing. But the hopeful thing is your past doesn't imprison you, but understanding and dealing with its impact helps you make connections that can free you from its pain in the present. Again, you may not even be acknowledging the connection, but so frequently there is one. In the introduction, I said that there were going to be four simple steps to healing. I am not discounting by calling them simple how really difficult these are or they can be. What I'm saying is that there are four basic simple steps that you may have to do over and over, but I've learned that there is a structure to healing. And maybe this will help you. First and foremost, you have to acknowledge the reality of what happened. How do we acknowledge the past? It's allowing yourself to realize how growing up within your circumstances, both good and bad, affected you. Staying in a place of denial or discounting the impact of an abusive or neglectful home will only keep you emotionally stuck you'll be much more likely to act out the consequences of it without realizing what you're doing. I'll give you an example from my own life. My husband and I used to fight about money. We didn't fight about much, but we fought a lot about basically how to share information about money. Then one day, now I have to tell you, my husband is not very psychologically oriented, so I was pretty shocked when he said this to me, but he said, do you realize you're treating me like your dad treated your mom? I was stunned at first, but then I realized he was exactly right. I so didn't want to live out my mother's more submissive 1950s role with money that I was overcompensating a lot. My dad controlled the money, and my mother always hated it. And of course, I got to hear about her anger as well. I guess that was where I started being a therapist. That acknowledgement shed light on what I had not seen until then. It put the pieces together. You can call it insight, you can call it understanding, whatever. But you know what? We have never fought about money since. So you can see how the acknowledgement of the connection between what you're doing in the present, whether you're overreacting or underreacting, how your present may be being governed by unresolved issues from your past. The second simple step, not so simple step, 
is to have compassion for yourself. You know, if a child ran up to you and had a bleeding gash in her arm, you wouldn't say, or let's hope you wouldn't say, just be glad it's not broken. You'd help them stop the bleeding and give them comfort. Well, that's what compassion is. Seeing pain, having empathy for what's causing it, and then trying to do something about it, or at least supporting the person in whatever painful emotion they're feeling. (laughs) Now, the trick is doing that exact thing for yourself. That's not self-pity. Far from it. That's not wallowing in pain. Far from it. In fact, it's likely to lead you to more quickly move on and not wallow at all. It's simple compassion for yourself. What would you say to somebody else that you may need to say to yourself? The third step is allowing your emotional pain to surface. Now, this is a lot harder than it sounds. For some people, it's really difficult. In fact, James came back the next session after he had teared up just a little bit and looked at me and said, I never thought I'd cry in front of anyone, but I feel a little better. I understand things better. It felt good to actually feel what I'd been carrying around and trying to discount or dismiss. Feeling all of your emotions? Not easy. You may be totally walled off from your painful emotions. You may tell yourself that it's not enjoyable to feel sad or angry. You may actually fear feeling pain. You may become accustomed to either not feeling anything or staying stuck in one emotion or the other like we were talking in the intro. Perhaps you're more comfortable with anger and everything makes you mad. Or you worry all the time and you just remain afraid and you're not dealing with anger or sadness. So risking change Risking feeling something, some emotion that you are not comfortable feeling, it can be very scary, but rewarding. Sometimes one of the homework assignments I give if somebody tells me they just can't get at their sadness, there's a beautiful classical piece of music called Adagio for Strings by Samuel Barber. I swear if you can listen to that without tearing up, (laughs) that's incredible. But music can be a way of getting to those emotions. Journaling, writing about the experience can also be a way of trying to connect with those emotions. Basically, it's not allowing yourself to distract from them with video games or with work or with substances, alcohol, weed, whatever, but sitting with what hurts. Some people will tell me, if I begin feeling what hurts, it will never stop. But I want you to know in 25 years almost, wow, I can't believe that, in 25 years of doing therapy, people do stop feeling pain. Now, that's different from people with recurrent depression. We're really not talking about depression right now, although it may have morphed into depression. We're talking more about someone learning how to feel pain and then move through it and get to the other side of it. Now, this fourth step isn't as necessary as the three others in order to heal, but I think it's very important. In fact, I get a lot of questions about this particular step. The fourth step is reveal what you experienced to someone you trust. Learning how to soothe your emotional pain gives you safety that perhaps you never had as a child. But don't forget that there are people who love you, who want to understand you and help you if they can. 
not solve the problem for you. There's nothing we can do about what happened in the past, obviously. But there's something about reaching out to someone who's going to listen and not judge whatever shame you may have been carrying around about what happened to you as if it's your fault can really be eased. Whether it's your partner, a good friend, or a therapist, there's someone out there who'll be willing to listen, but only if you reach out. I recently had an email from someone that said, but if I open up about who I am, that's the only part of me that that person is going to see. I understand the fear that if you tell the wrong person that could be used against you or to control you in some way, manipulate you, but healthy people are not going to do that. And my experience has been that when you share a vulnerability or a painful memory with someone, they feel incredibly honored and they will respect what you've told them. I don't believe anyone's strengths or their vulnerabilities define them. There's not one fact about you that defines you. We're all a conglomeration of facts and experiences, and you can find acceptance from someone that you care about. One of the things about therapy is that you get to practice in therapy a way of being with another human being. You can take that and apply it outside of therapy. Because what we want is whatever is healing in the therapeutic relationship, we want it to extend into your other relationships. But you've got to risk revealing. So to recap, the four quote-unquote simple steps is to acknowledge the reality of what happened. You know, you have to confront your own denial or discounting. To have compassion for yourself. To allow your pain to actually surface so you can feel it. And reveal what you experienced to someone you trust. I hope that's helpful. Whatever trauma or neglect or pain you had in your past, you can work it out. You can't change it happening, but you can change the way it affects you in the present. So here's an email from a listener. Dr. Rutherford, I've been reading some of your articles recently and listening to your podcasts, which have been really helpful. I have an issue I'm currently struggling with. I have a fantastic private therapist who I've been seeing for the last nine months, and we have worked through some very deep-rooted issues. Recently, I've experienced some new flashbacks, which I had at the time dissociated. I find it very difficult to talk, so most of the time I give a little, and then she guesses and I confirm what is correct. This can be very time-consuming, but she's very patient. Last week, I disclosed something to her that I'm deeply ashamed of, and now I wish we hadn't spoken of it, because I've been having these awful feelings of not wanting to face her again. This is actually somewhat like we talked about in Step 4, isn't it? Okay, continuing. I've canceled my next appointment and not yet rebooked. Should I tell her that I'm feeling this way? I understand quite a lot about shame, but this particular issue is much more shameful than anything I've ever experienced before, and so very personal. I've written her an email, but not sent it yet, as even that I am ashamed of. I guess it's admitting and focusing on the shame again. I just feel like I'm stuck in confusion. Any advice you can provide would be very much appreciated. So... I thought this was a really good email because it did talk about the vulnerability that you can feel when you begin to take out those things from your emotional closet, so to speak, and spread them out for someone to see. 
sometimes that can leave you almost like feeling emotionally naked or something. So here's my answer. I can hear how hard you're working in therapy, and that takes a great deal of courage. But the answer to your question is yes. You shift the conversation for now more to process than to content. What I mean by that is to talk with her about what the process of therapy feels like, not necessarily bring up more content of what has happened. You might even tell her that the two of you are going a little too fast and you need to slow things down. She may have figured that out herself when you canceled your appointment, but obviously talking about it would be the best thing. Perhaps you could call and talk to her about it first. That might help with your feeling of not wanting to see her, but still keep the connection with her. It certainly sounds as if the work is benefiting you and would be helpful to continue. It also might be helpful to remember something. We therapists are very honored when people share with us the things they've been carrying around for quite a long time. That kind of trust is a privilege. And if a therapist has been doing therapy for a while, she or he has probably heard something that is akin to your own story. That doesn't discount your story at all. In fact, if anything, it helps them understand even more the damage done and how your shame may have affected you. Sometimes a patient will say to me, They'll even ask me, have I overwhelmed you? Or I think what I've told you is way too much. And I'll say, well, let's just take the time to sort it out. But no, you've not overwhelmed me. That's a very important message, in fact, for a therapist to give a patient is the fact that what they're saying, what they're experiencing may not be normal necessarily because it's reflecting a very dysfunctional family or a painful experience, but that it's not overwhelming. I've heard some stories that are awful. You learn as a therapist what terrible things people can do to other people, but it doesn't mean that you can't find some kind of healing. I so appreciate you listening to this podcast. You can reach out to me in a whole bunch of ways. You can go to my website where I blog weekly, which is drmargaretrutherford.com. You can email me and I will answer you. And that's a confidential email at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. You know, I don't have a way of knowing via a podcast who you are. I do know where you're from, but that's the only piece of information I have. I don't know how old my listeners are. I would love to invite you to write me and tell me what you'd like to hear about because I want to gear these episodes to what's important to you. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Margaret, and I'm on Instagram at Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I like my Instagram because I use it to let people in on the rest of my life outside of the chair. (laughs) Some people think I live in that therapy room, I think. So you can join me there as well. Of course, I truly appreciate it if you would take just a few minutes to rate or review the podcast wherever you happen to listen, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or even from my own website. Your comments will help get the word out about self-work, and I'd be so grateful for that. Also, just tell your friends that you listen and that you found a podcast that hopefully can be entertaining and helpful at the same time. So again, thanks for listening. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and you've been listening to Self-Work.